Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perroyd, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your overall brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, Mike Mutzel, aka Metabolic Mike. Mike is a master biohacker who's a content machine in the space of wellness. He features incredible interviews on his podcast and YouTube channel with leading doctors, scientists, and researchers in the space of diet, epigenetics, lifestyle, sleep, and overall health optimization. And every month, over 700,000 people check out his incredible content. Mike has a master's in science in clinical nutrition and is a graduate of the Institute of Functional Medicine. He has a gift for taking the complex and making it simple, super simple, which is something we love at the Broken Brain Podcast. In April of 2014, Mike published his first book, The Belly Fat Effect, the real secret about how your diet, intestinal health, and gut bacteria help you burn fat. And you can find the book on Amazon or in the show notes. Mike lives in Kirkland, Washington with his wife, Dr. Deanna Arnold, their lovely daughter, and two incredible dogs. In addition to being a genius who has plenty of practical health tips to dish out, we also invited Mike to the podcast to talk about his very real and personal story with struggling with drug and alcohol addiction and how it impacted his brain health as a child. In fact, at one point in time, things got so bad that there were occasions where Mike seriously considered suicide. It's so important to have an honest conversation about these taboo topics and to also address how we can use the power of lifestyle intervention along with medication and clinical therapy as a serious part of the recovery process. Because suicide is mentioned in this episode, I want to encourage anyone who's hurting anyone who's seriously considering suicide as an option to please call the National Suicide Hotline at 800-273-8255. It's free and people are waiting 24 hours a day around the clock to talk to you. To start off our episode, I asked Mike if he could talk about how drugs and alcohol became a part of his childhood and what impact it had on his overall brain health. I hope you enjoy this episode and you consider sharing it with a friend. Yeah, you know, so growing up, you know, I went when I was a real young boy, went to a private school, got good grades and, you know, was was well to do and stuff like that from an academic standpoint. And my parents got divorced and I went to live with my mother and my new stepfather, a great gentleman. He was a fireman and all that sort of stuff. And and uh, yeah, my older brother, my older stepbrother, Josh, um, was going through a tough time, like he was in junior high school and stuff like that. And, and so he, I really looked up to him and everything. When I was nine years old, he exposed me to drugs and alcohol. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I, you know, as a nine-year-old, I've been told through dare and the, you know, don't do drugs and all these things. Uh, the drugs were bad, but you know, I respected my other stepbrother and I looked up to him and, and little did I know my life started to kind of slip away from me. You know, when I was nine, 10, I got arrested when I was 12 for shoplifting. It was a blessing in disguise, but when I was 15, I got arrested for having pot at school. Uh, Bellevue High School, I got suspended from school. My dad was like, I am not, we're not tolerating this behavior. You're going to an outpatient treatment center. Um, and of course, I rebelled and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, it, you know, that was the, 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 a big pivot in my life. And I realized that 
you know, I barely knew uh, my multiplication tables, ABCs, uh, you know, I had a stutter, like my brain was stunted from my lifestyle from, you know, binge drinking on alcohol at such a young age and smoking marijuana and doing all these things. Um, and so my stepmother introduced me to a chiropractor who got me into weightlifting. Eventually, you know, my senior year in high school was starting on the football team, starting to get better grades, was still struggling in school a lot, didn't have the, the grades to go to college. So went to a junior college and it was a bodybuilding friend of mine that introduced me to a low carb, you know, ketogenic style diet back in 2002, my first year when I was at that junior college. And all of a sudden my brain started turning on, right? So well, I had that fitness background, started, you know, cutting out the carbohydrates, increasing the, the good fats. And then I was like, all right, I, I can go to college. I have the, the, the mental wherewithal now um, to actually go to college and study like all the kids, you know, that I that I couldn't keep up with academically in high school due to, you know, my, my early adolescence. And just one question for you while you're sharing the stories that was there ever a moment in in high school that I mean, obviously, right now you're reflecting back on your journey and you're looking back on it and you, with all the knowledge and information you have. But was there ever a time in high school that you were like, maybe my brain won't get better. Or maybe I'm just dumb and nothing's going to change. Totally, Drew. Uh, I mean, to be honest, so much of life is mental. I, I go through that all the time, even today sometimes. So I just had to reframe um, in my own mind that the brain is malleable. And to be totally transparent, I mean, now that, that you know suicide is, is being talked about a lot more, I mean, I was – constantly think about suicide because I thought my brain was wrecked. I thought I was ruined. I thought, you know, because we would hear these, the, this ad, these advertisements that drugs mess up your brain, uh, alcohol and, and pot causes, you know, it creates holes in your brain and, and all this sort of stuff affects memory. So I really started to think, oh my gosh, like what if I totally screwed myself up? I'm an embarrassment to my family. You know, I, how can I live like this? I'm, I'm going to amount to nothing like that stuff. Roommate, I thought about that all the time, unfortunately, because I didn't know about this whole field of psychoneuroimmunology and that thoughts are things. And that by thinking that, then I will manifest, you know, and now I, I've learned to reframe that. So, so those conversations don't come into my thought processes anymore because I don't believe in them anymore. Uh, and I don't even want to even want one iota of that to manifest. So the, the, the message here is the brain is so malleable. I mean, it's absolutely amazing because, you know, if you were to have seen even pictures of me when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, you would never think that I could have authored a book and interviewed people. You know, we, we've been to Mark Hyman's house before. Jeff Bland's been on my podcast before. And to be able to keep up with those people from a, you know, to, and to be cognizant in a conversation with them, you would have never thought that Mike Munzel back, you know, over 20 years ago could have done that. So, yeah, to your question. I, I think that's such an important message. You know, we, you, we were chatting just a little bit beforehand. Obviously, you and I are friends. We've connected before. But especially in this day and age of so much stigma around drugs, and now we're having a lot more of a sophisticated conversation of you know, therapeutic benefits of some of the compounds inside of marijuana, but also the conversation around how very mainstream people who are out there, doctors, lawyers, other professionals, teachers, are being affected by the opioid epidemic by drugs in other forms. You know, heroin is not just something that affects, uh, you know, the quote unquote ghetto anymore. It's now a national crisis and it's really making people more aware. So it's nowadays you find more and more people whose lives was touched by drugs in some capacity, maybe a niece, a nephew, a husband, a wife, a somebody. So I'm, I'm glad that you're opening up about this and talking about how the brain can change after this because I don't know if a lot of people that are listening to this who might be touched by drugs in some capacity would feel comfortable 
bringing it up and talking about it with somebody else. Yeah, it's, I mean, a great point on many levels. You know, it, it is embarrassing, um, but it's, it's just a reality of the situation. You know, we, no one's perfect. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the take home message, like you said, is the brain is very plastic and malleable and changeable. And, and yeah, I think a lot of us are inherently, um, especially on the West Coast, you know, there's this whole dopamine allele where we're a little bit more novelty seeking and stuff. And I think a lot of us, you know, are seeking novelty behaviors and, and have some of that, that gene variant that requires a little excess, you know, some dopamine stimulation, right? Um, and, and so part of, you know, so, so naturally we're predisposed potentially to um, drugs and alcohol. I know, you know, my my grandparents were both alcoholics on both sides and all that sort. So I naturally, you know, gravitate towards that. And so, um, for some people it's, it's food, it's junk food, it's video games. It's, there's millions of different behavioral addictions. And, uh, I guess, you know, the, the flip side, the, the upside is that there's things that we can do and nutrition and physical fitness. I mean, of course I'm very biased cause those work for me, but they're a huge lever in helping us to, you know, cultivate better lifestyle changes and then eventually change our brain and our behavior. Was there a moment when you were younger and you were under the mentorship of this chiropractor who was teaching you about how to eat and lift weight? Was there a moment where you felt like, wow, and maybe it was in college that, okay, my brain is changing. You know, can you think of like a moment or a time or like a reflection point? Was there an exam that you got a great, great grade on? Was there something personal for you where you saw that, okay, things have shifted? Yeah, gosh, that's such a great question, Drew. You know, there was kind of two moments. Um, the first moment was when I started on on the varsity football team and stuff, and I was this skinny little punk kid, you know, uh, and just through grit, through hard work, um, you know, you know, the gym and all that sort of stuff. I, I honestly, the coach Butch Goncharov, um, I think he felt sorry for me. I was like, look, you're just going to be on the starting defensive line, and then my brother, who was a much better athlete than me, my younger brother, uh, much better athlete, you know, naturally gifted athlete, was on the other end, and we were both, you know, sitting there. It was like Friday night, and I was like, wow, this is me. Like I used to be this punk kid, you know, riding my bike at two in the morning. Like, yeah, how did I get here? And I realized that, like the body's malleable, like, like you can change. So that was the first moment. And the second moment was when I had the guts to go pre-med. I, I realized like, I, I, you know, I set the bar really low in college. When I first went to college, which was, I went to Northern Arizona University, NAU, then graduated from Western Washington University. I transferred halfway through. I'll tell you about why in a minute. Um, but yeah, I, I decided, you know, kinesiology was too easy for me because again, I, w I started to really change my brain through nutrition. Um, and so I, I started, I majored, switched my major to pre-med and biology. And my parents were like, what are you doing, Mike? Like, you're, you're lucky that you're in college. Like, just graduate, for goodness sakes. And I said, no, I can do this. Because in my kinesiology classes, you know, I was sitting next to people who were, were pre-med majors then, right? And I realized that I knew the information better than they did. And I was like, well, what, what's holding me back? Why can't I be a pre-med student and, and switch to biology? And so, yeah, it was like those two moments. And, and that's when I realized that, like, the thoughts that we tell ourselves and our, our, our thought processes and our beliefs, we can do anything that we put our minds to. And we hear these mantras and stuff on social media, uh, but, but it's so true. And uh, I just from then on just convinced myself I had no cards in my pocket that I could do it, that I could graduate with a degree in biology and, and all that. And so I just put my mind to it and, and just, you know, never looked back. It's amazing. 
Well, I want to dive in more into brain health and how the brain is malleable. But first, give us the origin story. Where did the name Metabolic Mike uh, come from? And um, yeah, I would love to hear that story. Yeah, great, great uh, you know, question. It's, it, you know, it's, it's just been something I've been interested in. You know, um, w- when I was a little kid, I mean, the irony of this whole story of kind of getting into drugs and all that at age nine is before that, I, I idolized Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I don't know if you remember, Drew, but Jean-Claude Van Damme, he was a karate persona in a lot of movies and everything. And I, I was really attracted to the aesthetic of, uh, of uh, you know, physique, like a good body, good muscles and all that. So it was just one of these things that intrinsically I was, I was naturally gravitated towards. And so um, it's been a lifelong interest for me. And so I, you know, I just, you know, some of the things that I, you know, the only things I really read in high school were like, no kidding, bodybuilding.com forums and, uh, you know, fitness and flex magazines and all that. So it's just been something I've been interested in. And again, that chiropractor got me into lifting weights and, and I've consumed millions of books, not millions, but lots of books on the topic, articles and everything along those lines. So it's just been something that's like, you know, I, I think all of us are put on this planet to do something to serve others. And that's just one of these topics that I'm naturally interested in nutrition and fitness and all that. And so I just try to consume that content and then share it with others and and kind of how I got the courage, if you will, to begin putting it out in the world was after I graduated college, I wanted to go to med school and started interning with a a medical doctor in Denver, Colorado. And I, you know, there was a lot of physicians assistants and other NDs in this clinic and they would come to me for advice, like, hey, Mike, what do you think about this? And, and I thought, you guys have been to med school. Why are you asking me? And I realized that even though there's a lot of great doctors out there with a lot of good training, uh, the physician training doesn't emphasize some of these things that we know about insulin and glucagon and leptin and these hormones that regulate our body composition, appetite, uh, fat burning and, and blood sugar metabolism and so forth. And so I started just sharing information with doctors uh, in, in a seminar format where I, you know, it was actually a, a, a like kind of a pharmaceutical sales type, uh, you know, selling uh, natural products and things like that. So I'd hold these dinner meetings and educate doctors on topics that, of course, they knew much more about the disease management from a med- you know, medicine standpoint, but they didn't really understand how the nutrition and, and the fitness and all that could change, say, insulin sensitivity or leptin sensitivity. So, um, yeah, it started really when I was young, but then professionally in 2006. So you mentioned a few great words over here that I want to break down. For some people, their introduction to the space of wellness and metabolism and, and brain health started with broken brains. So I want to go through a few different things that you mentioned. And again, what I love about some of the material that you present is you're great at breaking it down and helping people understand the basics. So let's, let's talk about um, insulin resistance, right? Help us understand what is insulin resistance? What does it have to do with our body, fat, and brain health? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. You know, um, I actually learned this analogy at IFM from uh, Alicia Stanton. She does a lot of teaching at IFM. And one of the things, the easiest way for people to visualize what insulin resistance looks like in the body is a lot of us before we've, we've ordered pizza. And we know that when we order pizza, the pizza man comes in and, and we give him cash or a credit card and we take the pizza. But imagine if you ordered pizza and 250 pizza men were, or pizza women were at your door knocking on the door. You wouldn't even let one in for fear that others would come in and you'd be overwhelmed with all the pizza men. Well, that is 
analogous to what happens at the receptor level. So when we're constantly, you know, getting poor sleep and have circadian rhythm dysfunction, when we're inactive and we're eating processed, refined carbohydrates and processed foods, our blood sugar keeps rising and rising. And then the bot, the pancreas needs to release what we call superphysiologic or just extra amounts of insulin. And the, the receptors that are on our muscle tissue, our fat cells and within our liver, those are kind of our three key metabolic organs. Uh, you know, the receptors, just like w the pizza men, when we have 250 on our porch, they start ignoring insulin's message. And so that creates a sort of vicious cycle where, uh, you know, there, there's more insulin around and insulin in and of itself has a lot of complications, which you know about. It causes atherogenesis or the formation of, you know, calcified plaque within our arterial system. It's pro-inflammatory. It affects the immune system. New research, as you know, is coming out in the brain suggesting it is linked with beta amyloid plaque and, and early onset of dementia and, and uh, other issues associated with cognitive decline. So it's not that insulin is bad. It's, it's bad when it's in the extra physiologic, what we call supra physiologic levels. Um, and, and so that can happen very easily through, you know, subtle changes that creep up over time where we start overeating. Uh, we stop exercising because we have a, a few kids or we're traveling or we hurt ourselves. Um, and this time of year, it can happen too when, when people are up late, you know, it's summertime. So they're going out, having, you know, hang out with friends and their whole circadian rhythm becomes imbalanced and that plays a key role. So yeah, essentially what it is, is the receptors stop, they ignore the message and and this happens with both insulin, with leptin, with, with other hormones in the body that are key for regulating our appetite and ability to burn fat for fuel. Now, you also mentioned leptin. And because we have individuals here who don't have a master's in science, can you break leptin down and what is its relationship with uh, metabolism and also uh, its impact on uh, insulin resistance? Yeah, great question. So leptin is really unique. It's this energy sensor in our body of sorts. So it actually start like right now as we film this about 3.30 Pacific Standard Time, our leptin levels are starting to increase and our hunger should usually start to diminish as the day goes on. Uh, and, and so leptin is made within our fat tissue and it's designed to be at its lowest point around you know 10 a.m. between 11, and that signals our body to start to eat, and we start to crave food if we haven't had food. And then as we refeed, leptin will slowly be released from our fat cells, and then it goes to our brain, our master hormonal regulatory uh, center in the brain called the hypothalamus, and it will tell our brain, you know what, we've, we've filled up enough energy for the day, we no longer need to eat. So then, you know, people should, you know, kind of stop eating 6, 7 p.m. and go to sleep. And it's really high while we're sleeping so that we don't wake up and crave food. But the challenge, just like we talked about insulin within the brain, the more fat that we carry, the more leptin we're going to be releasing. It's directly proportional to body fat. And so what happens is leptin is constantly then being released. All the receptors are becoming what's called down-regulated or desensitized and therefore, it's almost as though the message is not there, meaning people are craving all the time because there's no secretion or sorry, there's no, uh, you know, interaction between the, the receptor and leptin. So, it, you know, you hear these people say, I'm hungry all the time. I'm, I'm craving junk food. I'm just craving carbohydrates. It's because they have what's known as leptin resistance. And furthermore, leptin does some very interesting things within the immune system in a negative way in the context of, of hyperleptinemia or excessive amounts of leptin levels, 
when people, when their body fat starts to creep up over 20%, that's when we start seeing issues. And you can thank Dr. Eric Braverman for publishing that research because he tracked, I think, 15,000 patients over his career and correlated body fat with leptin. And there's a very, very strong like one-to-one correlation. People always want to know, well, what tests do I do? You know, is leptin covered by insurance? The most reliable and affordable leptin test is just to look at your waist circumference or have go to your practitioner where you can buy some uh, you know, tape on Amazon and look at your waist circumference to hip ratio. That will give you a good insight into your leptin level. Uh, because as I mentioned, it's, it's directly correlated one-to-one. The challenge, not only does leptin resistance and elevated levels of leptin cause uh, food cravings and things like that, it slows down fat burning, unfortunately. But a third major problem, and I think the most significant problem with leptin is it's very pro-inflammatory. You see, our immune system has a set of checks and balances I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast before. And there's this notion of immune tolerance and where people were we're less tolerant to our environment. We see this so often. Anytime we hop on an airplane now, we, see, we hear on the overhead intercom that if anyone has, you know, we're not serving peanuts today because someone has a peanut allergy. Uh, kids are sensitive. We have histamine intolerance. We have gluten intolerance, corn, all of that. Well, part of that, in my estimation, and research is alluding to this, is mediated through leptin because we have this anti-inflammatory immune cell called a T-regulatory cell. It's very protective. We want high levels of this T regulatory cell. It's kind of like um, you know street cleaning in New York. You see in the morning they go around and uh, pick up the trash and clean the streets and, and everything like that, so that the streets are clean for the next business day. The T regulatory cells do the same thing within our immune system. When they see debris or damage, they clean it up and restore it. So they're good guys. We want them there. We don't want the pro-inflammatory uh, interleukin six and TNF alpha signaling cells in the body. Well, leptin, what it does is actually suppresses the levels of the T regulatory cells. So then it's like there's no street sweepers, there's no garbage pickup, it's a free-for-all within our immune system, and there's a lot of inflammation. So we see Hashimoto's, we see Graves, we see more metastatic and uh, invasive breast cancer correlated with high levels of blood leptin. We see other neurologic complications and brain on fire uh, linked with leptin. So again, it kind of goes back to you know, there's many ways that we can affect our body and our metabolism, but this is why I'm such a big fan of fitness because just doing body weight squats or sprints or doing some fasted cardio with some green tea can really help your body restore that leptin sensitivity. So not only are you quote unquote burning fat, but you're affecting your metabolism, which in turn has a huge impact on your body's inflammatory system. And as you know, Drew, and Dr. Mark talks about a lot, you know, there's not a disease that we can name that is not linked with inflammation. And so leptin resistance correlates one-to-one with inflammation. It's really key, you know, for people, if you have a little bit of extra body fat, you got to get moving, got to get exercising, because that can really help with leptin resistance. Fascinating. All super fascinating. And so I just want to connect a few dots that you were sharing there just to, you know, because there was so much gold in what you just shared. So it's like the first thing, if you expand out if you look at all the reverberations of what you're sharing it's like this idea that you can't stop eating because you don't have enough willpower it's like that's just out the window now sometimes people get in this vicious cycle where their body just literally does not have uh, the right communication internally to tell it to stop eating right that's right that's one component the next thing that i think is really amazing off of what you shared is that there was so much focus, I guess, you know, especially uh, 
in the 40s where we started to see our uh, massive you know, weight gain and heart disease start to become an issue in the United States and we were looking for the answer, the focus was just primarily put on extra weight, right? And in saturated fat in some categories, but we'll come back to that. But it was almost like, well, why do we exercise? Well, we just want to lose weight. But having extra weight on our body in the form of visceral fat or belly fat or this fat that you're talking about that's pro-inflammatory, it's not just something that we want to lose to look better. It's actually when we lose it, our body functions better. The total level of inflammation that's going on in our body is reduced. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a huge message. And we can even dive further into that. I mean, if you were to biopsy fat tissue of, let's say you wanted to do a little end of one experiment and, and do something like you saw in that movie, I think Fed Up it was, or one of those movies where, where uh, you, you start eating a bunch of junk food and stay inactive and, and all that sort of stuff. If you were to biopsy your fat tissue before that little experiment, gain maybe 50, 60 pounds and biopsy your fat tissue again, it would be totally, there would look different under the microscope. In the lean phase, there wouldn't be much inflammation within the fat cells. In the overweight phase, there would be five-fold increase in the number of different immune cells and all that. So think about that your body is just basically beaming with all these inflammatory cells. And so, you know, then we, we correlate overweight with, you know, dementia, mild cognitive impairment, depression, you know, anxiety, you know, asthma, allergies, autoimmunity. That's kind of the missing link is, you know, that like, as you said, the fat is on fire. And again, it's not the willpower. It's these, these biochemical changes that happen slowly. We're not even aware of them, but by the time they happen, it's almost like it's, we're spiraling out of control. Control. And that's why I love, you know, people working with professionals and, and listening to podcasts like this so that they can figure this stuff out and make the appropriate lifestyle changes. And, and this is also not just uh, uh, traditionally, you know, you look at a person, you're like, okay, they're overweight. And then you look at another person and that person's not overweight. I mean, there's plenty of people that are skinny that are what we call skinny fat. Can you explain that and how those individuals still deal with these same issues? Yeah. Oh my, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, it's, this is a key point. And, uh, you know, I learned this from Dr. Hyman at uh, a functional medicine seminar. I can't remember when, but it was a long time ago. And we call these the MONWA or metabolically obese normal weights. And it turns out that about 20 to 25% of people that are visibly lean are fit into this category. And if you were to run a DEXA scan on them, it's not that they're putting body fat on the vis, you know, on the the uh, you know the back of the arms and the glutes and the legs. They're putting it in and within their key organs, like within the pancreas, within the liver, within their muscle, within the heart. This is known as ectopic lipid deposition, and it's much more problematic, much more pro-inflammatory. So I'm glad you mentioned that because you know, for some of us that know that skinny person that can just eat and pig out. And they don't look visibly over, overweight by doing that. Unfortunately, their their body is dealing with the, the you know metabolic imbalances and excessive calories, excessive carbohydrates in a different manner. That's a little bit more silent, but much more, if we want to say, uh, fatal or problematic from a long term health standpoint. Yeah, just because we can't see it doesn't mean that their body's not dealing with the same amount of percentage of visceral fat around them that's causing all these inflammatory markers so you can still be skinny but be super unhealthy. Yeah, great point. Yeah, all very fascinating. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, so on the flip side, you know, we hear so many people that uh, watch the Broken Brain series and get excited and want to start diving into this and, 
and approach it and, and start to figure out, well, what can I do to start pulling myself out of this cycle that my body's in of always being hungry? You know, one of our dear friends, uh, Dr. David Ludwig has a book called Always Hungry and describes this sort of pattern that people get in. So when people write you in, when they comment on your YouTube page and they're like, okay, this is me. I recognize myself in this. I have a little bit of this extra fat that's there. I have this constant cravings, some of these other functions that you're describing. Um, what are the beginning steps to begin to get out of that cycle? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. You know, one of the first things, I mean, there's a lot of tactics with diet, nutrition and all that, but one of the first things is I like to make sure that people are kind of ready for this uh, and, and that being healthy fits in with their values because, you know, sometimes people are, are jumping from diet to diet and, and they're like, nothing worked, keto didn't work, paleo didn't work, I, I'm broken and all that. And I just want to make sure that they understand that, you know, that their values coincide with getting healthier. Uh, and so well, I like people to kind of link a long-term goal uh, with improving their health. And, and some, for some people, a lot of people, that's being around for their grandkids or having more energy to play with their kids. And so some of that mindset stuff, it, it sounds a little fluffy and light, but, but it's under-recognized in this community and, and it, it makes a big impact. So um, what for, first thing people need to do is link uh, getting healthy or losing the weight or whatever with something bigger than themselves. Tony Robbins talks about this a lot. So that's kind of step one is, you know, again, and, and write that down, recite it every single day. And again, it sounds a little fluffy, but it really, really works. And so, um, you know, like for, for just to be selfish, you know, if you will, for a moment, for an example, you know, I, I have this YouTube channel, it gets decent traffic. So I want to be the healthiest I can so I can share my message with the world. And so, you know, when I'm presented with alcohol, presented with things that are incongruent with me being the best version of myself, I fall back to that. And I say, hey, you know, does the mic that wants to improve all these people's lives and has this traffic and ability to do so, is, is this, you know, drinking alcohol or having potato chips or, or not going to the gym, is that going to get me closer to the goal or further from the goal? And so it really helps um, when, like you said, will a lot of us, willpower fades, it ebbs and flows. At the end of the day, we don't have much willpower. But if we keep thinking about this big goal that we're trying to do, and that big goal can be super simple, like be the best grandparent I can be, be the best parent I can be. You know, it doesn't have to be change the world, right? Um, so that's step number one. Step number two, you know, just implement some aspect of time restricted feeding. You know, a lot of people right now hear about intermittent fasting and, and three day fast and all that. And it's very simple. When the sun goes down, you stop eating. All right. And when the sun wakes up soon after that, you can start eating. That's very, very simple to do. Now, of course, the days are a little bit longer as we record this, you know, just June 26th, 25th. Um, so then that means we're not going to be fasting as long, but just implement some, you know, fasting window that can be, again, when you're starting out, it can, maybe it's only six hours because you have some insulin resistance. But if you can get to a point where you can fast for 13 or 14 hours, you know, every single day, just compress that feeding window down to, you know, eight to 12 hours. So you're only eating, say, between 10 a.m. and 7 p.m., right? It's very doable for people. That in and of itself is going to have a huge impact on affecting the insulin resistance we talked about and also the leptin resistance. Uh, I'm sure you have questions on that. But we can transition a little bit more to exercise, but want to make sure, Drew, that you see if you have any questions there. Yeah. So on that note, just like 
describe to us what's happening in the body. You know, when we are time restricted eating and we're keeping those 13 hours, or let's just say 12 hours for math purposes, mm-hmm. let's say the sun's going down at eight o'clock, we're going to stop eating at eight and then we're not going to eat to the next morning, you know, eight or nine, you know, in the morning. What, t- tell us what's, what's happening inside of the body during that time. I mean, there's so many things happening, but big picture, what's going on in the body and how does that benefit us in this uh, process of insulin resistance? Yeah, it's a wonderful point. And actually, you asked me this question earlier, and I kind of didn't talk about it specifically. But um, what happens when we when we go for an extended period of time without food is insulin begins to drop and lower, right? Because insulin is telling our body to store stuff, store, store, store. It should be rising after a meal. So we haven't had food, so insulin doesn't need to be around. It starts to, be, to drop. And then that actually triggers, our, once insulin is low, triggers our fat cells to start actually releasing fat instead of storing it. It's a little more complex if people want to research it, the hormone called hormone-sensitive lipase and glucagon, they're involved in that. But long story short, our fat cells start to release fat. Then our liver says, okay, well, let's repackage some of those fats so our brain can get some action too because the brain can't directly deal with fats being released right from the fat tissue. The brain can only thrive on glucose or ketones, right? So the liver starts to repackage that fat that's released from our fat tissue to make it into ketones. And then it also sends those those fatty acids out to the muscles to be burned as fuel. So long story short, we rely more upon what we call to be fat adapted or we rely upon our fatty acid biochemistry uh, when we when we do this time restricted feeding. And actually, I just did a Instagram live uh, in IGTV yesterday on this. A new study came out in animals showing that when we fast Here's what's really cool about it. It changes our gene expression, a phenomenon known as epigenetics. So fasting and intermittent fasting affects this key uh, signaling pathway. It's a complex JMGD3. People want to look it up. It's a little bit more complex biology, but it, it really affects our mitochondria and the genes involved in fatty acid oxidation. So just by fasting every day for 12 hours, you're literally going to change the way that your genes are being expressed or read, which over the lifetime has a huge impact on our body's metabolism, DNA stability, cancer prevention, and much more. And the great thing about it, I mean, you're not telling people to go on a you know three-day water fast. You're just simply saying restrict the eating from this period of time to this period of time. And, and for those folks that are listening to this, have never done a fast before, I mean, can because you're so in the research, mm-hmm. I, I mean, can you talk about like on a scale of one to 10, how safe is integrating fasting like this uh, into our lifestyle based, Super. On the, based on all the research that's out there? Yeah, super safe. I mean, even if people, I mean, look, if, if you're an insulin dependent diabetic and on multiple medications, you want to monitor your blood sugar to make sure you're not going into a hypoglycemic state. But the the benefit there is, is, is you can get away with using less drugs, right? It's not, I mean, you may, might not get off your drugs right away, but you're going to need less and less. And so, yeah, the, the, the complications, the side effects, they're very minimal. And again, this is mostly going to be the time that you're at your house anyway, so that, you know, if you need to have a little bit of glucose or a piece of fruit to, to kick you back a little bit, if you go to a hypoglycemic state, no problem. But most people have absolutely no problem with this. The, the, the problem is that, again, it comes back to our mindset. We've been taught by 
you know, Jenny Craig and all these different diet groups, you know, that we need to stoke our metabolism as though it's some sort of fire and we need to constantly have food in the system. And that was just wrong advice. Every time we eat, again, we release insulin and that causes our body to store more body fat. And so it's not, we need insulin to be low in order to start burning it. So really side effect free. And once people start you know, a lot of people get into this and they, they like they do what you said, Drew, was a, a three-day water fast. And then the challenge with that, I mean, that might work for some people, but it's not a great starting point because after the three-day fast, you are starving, you're hungry, you can overeat, and then you feel like, you know, almost entitled to eat extra amounts because, you know, you didn't have any food for three days and it can create a vicious cycle. And I don't see that working long term for people. I think, you know, that being more consistent and regular with, say, a 12 or 14 hour fast every day is going to be much better long term than trying to squeeze in some extreme fast periodically. Or to squeeze in an extreme juice cleanse where people Mm -hmm. go on juice primarily for seven days. Not that there can't be some benefits to it too, but if somebody's just getting started, often you see sometimes people get on this yo-yo program. And I would love to talk about that a little bit more. So, you know, you're you're running through these things that people can do to begin, to begin to change this vicious cycle of not having energy and constantly being hungry and improve their overall uh, metabolism. So you already gave us two big ones. Can I ask another third one, which is that, you know, you talked about time-restricted eating. You just talked about time-restricted eating. Is is one of the tips also making a choice, a conscious choice about sort of what calories we're choosing to burn for fuel throughout the day? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, so just focusing more on you know good quality protein, and you can do this as a vegetarian or a meat eater or whatever in in healthy fats. You know, the the point is, you know, so so by doing this twelve hour fast every single day, you're already going to become more insulin sensitive. So to eat a diet that's not um, causing insulin to be released uh, and so forth, and so this can be low carb, this can be low carb ish, paleo ish. Um, you know, we can say it's keto, whatever whatever you want to say. But it, for many many people, many different conditions, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, memory loss. Um, that sort of diet that, that really doesn't impact blood sugar uh, can be very helpful. And but on the flip side, you know, a lot of people get it, hear about this. They they read keto and or keto books or or see a, a video on keto, so they start eating tons of bacon, tons of butter. You know, um, that without eating that way, without remembering to fuel the microbiome through herbs and and other you know spices and good fiber things like that can backfire on some people. And we hear this a lot. Oh, I tried keto and it didn't work for me. And it's not like, like if I told you, Drew, oh, I tried exercise and it didn't work for me. You'd say, well, what type of exercise did you do? How many days a week did you do it? How often were you doing it, right? There is no one one size fits all keto diet or one size fits all low carb diet. So um, we got to remember, you know, to eat whole real foods that are rich in color. So whether you're vegan, a carnivore, whatever it is, you got to go back to some of the basics. And so I recommend that that when people are doing this, when they're eating more fat in their diet, they're not forgetting the basic principles of what a healthy diet is. And that, that always falls back on real whole foods, good color and, you know, being moderate, you know, in terms of, you know, not eating, uh, snacking all the time, not overeating um, and not having too many processed, you know, foods in there. A lot of people, again, when they go low carb, 
their main fat source is like prepackaged MCT oil. And again, there's nothing wrong with maybe once or twice a week or something like that, using it for a cleanse maybe, but we don't want to be dependent upon this processed oil uh, for, for our, our, our fueling our cells and everything along those lines. We want to get it from real whole food. Let's, because uh, I always want to make sure that the audience is with us and where everything is. People have heard this term keto. They've seen it in our Broken Brain documentary. They've seen the, the therapeutic benefits that it can have in the instances of uh, Alzheimer's, cancers, other uh, practitioners in the series who are using it as a targeted protocol. But uh, just help us understand, break down keto um, and, and put it into context from us in sort of this modern day meme. You know, the word is out there. It's out there kind of in society. It kind of has become another one of these things like gluten-free and this. So what is keto? Uh, how is it kind of living out there in the world and what is the best expression of it in, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Well, you said that this keto diet has been named after, you know, a diet that's been used to treat epilepsy uh, in children because through, through different mechanisms. So these, as I mentioned, you know, let's say we start to do that fast. It's a 12 hour fast overnight. Um, you know, insulin is low, glucose is low. That's kind of the recipe or the environment for our liver to get the message to start making these ketone bodies um, from from the free fatty acids that our fat tissue are uh, releasing. Uh, again, because the brain can't directly utilize those free fatty acids, it needs either glucose or ketones. No glucose is around, so the liver's gonna start to kick up these ketones. So that's where the, kind of the, the background, that's the physiology. And what gets me very excited about the ketogenic diet, and I help other people understand this, is these ketones are not just a, a cleaner fuel source that some people talk about, which they are. They need to be utilized and burned within the mitochondria, which is this little you know cell within our cells. It's very protective and linked with longevity. But most importantly, uh, Dr. Jeff Bland and others talk about this, and we mentioned earlier epigenetics. These ketones change gene signaling in a positive fashion. So just having them around can literally make our DNA more stable more protected. They reduce things like free radicals that we hear about that are linked with aging, linked with depression and brain issues. So they're very, very protective from that standpoint. And that's what got me really excited about this whole ketogenic diet. You know, at first, when it started coming on, maybe 2013, 2012, I, I thought, you know, gosh, why are people getting so excited about this? And and I realized that, uh, you know, these ketone metabolites function, you know, just like a gut bacterial derived compound that we know to be very healthy called butyric acid. Butyric acid is increased from eating things like grass fed butter, broccoli, Swiss chard and all that. Well, it turns out that the main ketone body, beta hydroxybutyrate that you measure in your blood to see if you're in ketosis functions very similarly to uh, butyric acid, which is a very healthy compound made from fibers that we eat. So anyway, long story short, these ketone bodies are very protective. They affect our brain. They affect mitochondrial function. So there's a lot of great things that they do, and that's why I think people should be excited about this, but not lose sight of the fact that to get more fat adapted or keto adapted, you don't need to run out and totally change your diet and never eat vegetables again. You you need to just stick to real healthy foods, try to get good colors in there. And I like to encourage people to focus on plant-based fats. You know, we hear a lot about butter and bacon, but what about avocados and coconut and, you know, other sprouted and soaked nuts and seeds, you know, things like that. Those are very, very healthy, not only for our microbiome and they're very ketogenic. You know, they, they cause our liver to make these ketones. Um, 
and you know when we eat them we don't spike insulin which is which is good as well so i think the keto diet's here to stay it's not just another fad diet because again these ketone molecules affect our gene expression in a powerful way that's great thank you for breaking that down and i you know there's a lot of different debates on what the right diet is and i don't right. think that's ever going to go away but one lesson that i've taken away from your work and dr hyman's work is that the body is adaptable and we've developed these evolutionary abilities to burn on fat and do this or go periods of time without food because we just had to. You know, we evolved as society, we evolved as humanity, and probably somewhere in the shift of going from, you know, uh, switching into like advanced Homo sapiens, our body developed these different techniques to become um, adaptable. And and right now we see a lot of. Um, what people would say is extremism in uh, the wellness, uh, the health space, and I'm sure that will always be there. Uh, what's your opinion on that? You know, are you of the belief that there's a one diet that's right for everybody? You know, how can we step into this, step out of it, and really just take principles from different things that we're hearing about to personalize our own dietary approach? Yeah, I think the latter. That, that's beautifully said. You know, um, just because something is very popular doesn't mean it's right for you. Uh, for example, genetics plays a, a huge role. You know, people from of Saudi Arabian descent and Portuguese descent have a, a slight variation in the gene that synthesizes a key step in the ketone production. So for them, uh, and there's other variations, other genes, and so forth. Uh, not just those, that's like a very extreme example, but for them, a ketogenic diet wouldn't be very helpful, right? And so again, looking at your genetics, looking at your environment, and most importantly, looking at your goals, you know, and what's sustainable for you. Um, you know, I see a lot of people that are CrossFitters, right? And they're doing keto. Uh, again, I, as much, I love working out. I worked out earlier this morning, had a great workout and all that. Um, when I work out, I, I bring carbohydrates with me because, it, you know, just understand the basics of performance. I'm going to have a better workout with a little bit of carbohydrates. And it wasn't any powders. It was, you know, a few dried figs, right? So it's from real whole food. But, you know, so again, it's that context and with your health goals, what are you trying to achieve? And I like to have people kind of take a realistic look at this. It's just like a financial planner would, you know, if you were talking about investing is, you know, how long have you been saving or how long have you been eating this way or, or not eating this way? How long have you been healthy or unhealthy? And so if you've been eating a relatively processed food diet, high in carbohydrates for a long time, then maybe going long-term low-carb, at least till you really start to lose some weight and restore those blood sugar levels, makes a lot of sense. But if you're already pretty lean, pretty active, pretty healthy, you don't need to do anything radical because you're pretty close to where you need to be any, anyway. So again, context is essential, and I like to remember, remind people about all that and not get you know focused on the scale or you know I get a lot of messages on I started the keto diet and my ketones are not elevated yet and it's like well okay well did you exercise beforehand are you doing this time shifted feeding that we're talking about are you know are you you know what's your stress level uh, are you going to bed at the same time every night you know there's all these other lifestyle factors you know it's it's a, like a big onion keto is just one slice of this major onion or you know diet in general there's all these other lifestyle factors so i think all of that needs to be addressed and uh, again people want to know like the the recipe the protocol and unfortunately we need to try these things on see if they fit and then tinker and test as we go when you look at your own life and you know so many questions of course in the space of wellness tend to focus on diet but what are the other key categories of things because diet is just one part of it 
that you've seen play a tremendous impact in your mood, your cognition, your overall health and wellness? Yeah, that's such a great question, Drew. Um, I would say two things and in the order of priority or impact. First things is social connection. The science is coming out now, and we know this now. But you know, in college, going back to college, when I was just hyper focused on getting the best grades, um, acing my my exams and stuff, I kind of locked myself into a. It was always at the library and was socially isolated for a few years, and and those were very lonely times. And so, you know, I, I think um, really focusing on make like making friends, connecting with friends, making that a priority. I didn't used to prioritize that because I didn't understand that it. I thought people were, were getting in my way of, of achieve, achieving a school or doing whatever. And I realized that like, you know, your, your net worth is your network, right? The people that you know, and it, and that really affects your mental outlook. And so, um, I, I know people that eat really good diets, exercise and all that, you know, all the time and they have no friends and, and they just don't look good. They, they don't, you know, radiate exuberance and, and happiness and, and things like that. Good energy. So, and I see this online where, where, you know, people take pictures of all their Instagram meals and the picture perfect meals and the healthiest thing, but they're still not healthy. And so, you know, social connections, I think it's big friendships, having friends that, that both challenge you, having friends that you can talk uh, shop with and and uh, you, you can look up to, um, you know, having friends that are that are congruent. I think a lot of us, you know, live in the same places that we went to high school and everything like that. We have the same friends just because they've been that way forever. Uh, and that's great, you know, but but you constantly if you're growing, your friends are going to grow. And sometimes you might outgrow old friends and you can you know, hang out with them periodically. But I think, you know, um, meeting new people all the time is so essential um, to mental health. And then we know that through the field of psychoneuroimmunology, that, that our mental health is connected to our body through our immune system. And so, um, yeah, I'd say, you know, that is key. And then sleep. Um, yeah, I didn't prioritize sleep. You know, I was writing that book, Belly Fat Effect, back in 2012. And man, it made a, it really affected my health. And, and it was insidious. It crept up on me. And then since getting the aura ring and using wearables and trackables, that's when I really noticed that, wow, staying up late on, on the computer, working on content, researching, okay, that's good, but you got to do it at another time, re restructure my day so that I'm not affecting my sleep. And, and can you just give a little quick blurb for the Aura Ring, where people can find it and what it, how you use it? Yeah, it's a, it's, so it's a, a product made in Finland. Uh, Aura, it's O-U-R-A, and uh, it's, it's an, a great ring. What it, basically what it does is, is every five, I think it's every five or 15 seconds, it's tracking your pulse and your heart rate variability, and it correlates. I, I'm not like a sales rep for them or anything. I have no financial connection with them, but it, it correlates on a 95% accuracy your sleep architecture. So we've been taught for a long time, you know, as long as you get eight hours of sleep, it's all good. But uh, that's really not the case. It's the type of sleep cycles and when you have sleep cycles and your heart rate when it's the lowest point. There's all these different, you know, new expanded understanding about sleep biology and sleep health. And the Aura Ring provides us really good feedback about how we're sleeping, about our heart rate and our heart rate variability. And we want our heart rate variability to be higher. That's inversely correlated with stress. It's a great biomarker. So, uh, you know, I just found it to be one of these indispensable tools. 
to have, uh, again, because just small little things, even just looking at Instagram before bed, it, it totally th- throws off your, your deep sleep cycle. Um, getting in an argument or, or even not, you know, this encourages meditation, right? We, we hear meditation's good and all that, but you know, when you wake up and you see that your heart rate variability is improved, you can remember your dreams because you meditated the night before it really reinforces healthy lifestyle change. So I love the wearables for that. So I've put together uh, a few episodes that I think are notable episodes that you've had on your YouTube um, interview series and your website, and I'd love to just run down a few of these topics and these guests and talk about the topic that you interviewed them on, and if there's an insight that you could share from the conversation you had with those individuals for our podcast listeners. It sounds much yeah. more complicated than it is, but I think, <laughs> I think you sure. get it. So um, recently, I actually just met uh, Dr. Shalini Bhatt, and, uh, mm-hmm. who's from Toronto, is a chiropractic doctor out there, is doing some great stuff. You interviewed her on your series about uh, how fascia is now an organ. What's one insight that you can share with our podcast listeners about that interview you had with her? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, the research from that, I mean, I didn't know much about fascia, but, uh, you know, sometimes when we have pain, like in our elbow, we think, oh, it's my elbow that's the problem. But oftentimes what it is, it's the fascia and the connective tissue, maybe referring from, say, your your back or your hip or whatever, that's causing your elbow to feel the tension. And so that was just a, a wonderful aha moment for me. And then as a clinician, she's found that when she gets people to change her diet, she's working on, you know, the, the musculoskeletal system from like a mechanical standpoint, stretching and doing, you know, other, uh, you know, soft tissue work, acupuncture, etc. But she found that once she changes people's diets, uh, that the fascia becomes more malleable. And instead of being rigid and sort of sticky, she has this great analogy of putting your hands in sugar water or honey and trying to rub them together. They're going to be very sticky. Well, if we have blood sugar that's, you know, 150, you know, milligrams per DL, that's, it's going to be very, our fascia is going to be sticky and no wonder we're going to have soft tissue pain. In contrast, if we kind of rub our hands in olive oil and have good oil, our fascia can move and just like our hands would glide over oil. So to me, that was a great connection between our diet and all these musculoskeletal people. We hear this all the time. People say, I can't go to the gym because, well, I have osteoarthritis or I have a bad knee or a bad hip or bad whatever. And so, yeah, that may be true, but you got to also work on your diet because it's all connected. And this big fascia is now a newly identified organ. Incredible. Just key. Yet another uh, credible naturopathic doctor, uh, Dr. Uh, Retzler, on mm-hmm. your uh, show talked about erectile dysfunction and what the causes are and how to rethinking it a little bit. What's a takeaway you can share with our audience about that interview? Yeah, gosh, that was provocative. That was a great discussion. You know, I think there's a few things from that. Uh, first one, the obvious one is the cardiovascular health really affects sexual performance uh, in both men and women. And it has to do, so all this, these things we've been talking about, Drew, blood sugar issues, sleep imbalances, carbohydrates, et cetera, uh, those are going to affect insulin. That affects our, as we talked about before, our cardiovascular system, and that can affect performance in the bedroom, which has a, as you mentioned, the word, I love that word, reverberation effect into our self-esteem. Our outlook. I mean, if we can't perform for people that we care about, that we're in love with, we feel as humans inadequate, uh, we, we lose confidence and all that. So she shared off camera a lot of anecdotal stories about men and women that she's worked with that, 
you know, have vaginal dryness or, or, you know, men that can't get erections or, you know, ejaculate prematurely and all that, uh, how it really affects their mood and their confidence and all that. So that was one major takeaway. The other one, uh, the, the harbinger uh, of all this is not, not so much biochemical directly, but or nutritionally related, but it's looking at porn and pornography. And we know that, you know, some of the top, you know, unfortunately searches in the world on the web are for porn sites. And it's so much so accessible. And, and just like those carbohydrates and those foods provide that dopamine hit every time someone's looking at porn and seeing naked pictures, it's, it's just this novelty, this constant novelty. And that makes, you know, as she talked about and the research is emerging, that makes the real deal kind of seem boring because it's just way to be with one person, one partner, you know, on the internet, you can see unlimited amounts. And so that is having a major effect on erections, erectile dysfunction, uh, both in men and women. It's changing dating. Like there's this major problem going on on the internet and also uh, dating apps, Tinder and all these other things because it's this constant dopamine hit, constant novelty. There's like unlimited, you know, perceived unlimited partners that we could uh, and people out there that we can have access to. So why would you just have one, you know, kind of thing. And so that's really affecting the, the brain and dopamine. And so you know, she's seeing in her, her practice because she's a functional medicine practitioner and treats the whole body. She's seeing a lot of attention issues, a lot of focus issues, a lot of erectile dysfunction, going back to pornography use, which no, again, this is one of these things that we don't, like we mentioned earlier, we don't really talk about drugs and drug use and addictions. And not too many practitioners screen for porn use, yet it's really exceedingly high and can be very addictive and can have major negative consequences, uh, you know, in terms of our interpersonal relationships and much more. Incredible. All topics that need so much more honest discussion around it. And I just want to applaud you for having folks like this uh, as Dr. Retzler on your podcast and diving into it because... Um, they're there and they're part of our right. life. And if we can't talk about them honestly, then, you know, what are we going to do besides suffer from all the symptoms of uh, having this, you know, unhealthy lifestyle? Um, right. I want to talk about another uh, mutual friend of ours, Dr. Uh, Stephen Lane, who's a dentist. And he, uh, he did a great show with him about the mouth being the gateway to health and disease. What's one interesting thing that you think came out of that interview with him that might surprise people who are listening about? Who are listening into this podcast? Yeah, that, there's so many key takeaways from that, and he's so well spoken. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest key takeaway from that is how we breathe affects our entire biology. Um, you know, so so oftentimes, you know, for some of us, we weren't breastfed. We we've been given antibiotics as children and all that sort of stuff. So so we our nose can be kind of clogged up. So we become mouth breathers. And we don't realize the consequences of breathing through our mouth, particularly while we're sleeping. Uh, the, the neurologists and sleep neurologists have kind of elucidated the mechanisms. But when we're sleeping, we temporarily, there's little burps of this throughout our sleep cycle where we become paralyzed, so our body can kind of uh, repair things. It's kind of like, you know, one neurologist explained to me, uh, you know, when, when our garbage disposal is full. We would never stick our hand in there while it's spinning. We would turn it off and then get the junk out of there. Well, your body does the same thing. And so while your joints are being repaired and stuff, you become temporarily paralyzed. But long story short, if you're breathing through your mouth while you're going through these sleep cycles and you're becoming temporarily paralyzed, your tongue just can fall and block your airway. And that creates what we know to be called sleep disordered breathing, which is linked with all these challenges, hypertension, 
insulin resistance, more weight gain, leptin resistance. I mean, there's a, a myriad of very common health complaints, low energy, brain fog, everything we can think of is linked with breathing through our mouth while we're sleeping. So if we just do something simple like tape our mouth shut using just some micropore tape from Walgreens or Rite Aid or any drugstore, and we retrain our biology to breathe through our nose, again, a lot of us the, a lot of children that were breastfed, that were you know not given antibiotics, they do this anyway because while you're breastfeeding on the nipple, the baby is forced to breathe through their nose. But again, that neural pathway is not being kind of uh, hardwired for many of us because we were just given a bottle and whatever, you know, and, 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 and it was soy protein and stuff like that. So anyway, um, that is a huge lifestyle modality change that they can have sweeping effects on all these different things that we talked about, you know, to kind of capstone this discussion is just relearning to breathe through your nose and no kidding, Drew, it can change your facial development, even as an adult, because all of these brain or all these bones that comprise our skull are malleable and they're moving around. And when we start to you know, breathe, relearn to breathe through our nose, we can change the way that our lips pierce together, our facial expressions, like there's a lot of things going on there. So it's a, it's a huge lever that we have access to. Incredible. And we'll be sure to link to all these episodes in the show notes. Uh, there's one more episode that I want to cover and sure. it's uh, one that you did. What is thermogenesis and why are you jumping into a cold ice bucket of water? <laughs> Yeah, that's a wonderful question. You know, again, it's going back to these things that humans have done for a long time. You know, I remember listening to a podcast, uh, an interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger a long, long time ago. And, uh, you know, again, as I mentioned before, I kind of look up to him and idolize him and everything like that. Um, But he was the youngest of three or four kids in Austria, this, this small little village. And so he never had, this is just one example, but he never had warm water growing up and he just learned to overcome that. And that was just part of life, you know? And I think my mother-in-law is from the UK growing up and and they didn't have, she's in her seventies now, they didn't have any warm water where she lived. And it was just part of life. It's just something that you did. And so, you know, I think in our life, there's, everything is so easy. You know, I don't have to leave my house. I can get groceries delivered from Instacart, you know, I can order everything on Amazon. I can keep the temperature constant throughout the year, same temperature. So for many of us, you know, a little bit of grit, a little bit of uncomfortableness, actually, just like exercise is uncomfortable, it stimulates our biology in a positive way. And so long story short, you know, when I was doing the research in belly fat effect, knowing that with Arnold Schwarzenegger and other people like Tony Robbins who do these cold plunges, Uh, Some research back, I think it was in 08 or maybe 2009, started coming out about brown adipose tissue. And, you know, when I was taught in biology and stuff that, you know, brown fat is just on children, adults don't have it. But now we're learning, scientists are, are learning that, well, adults do have brown fat. And when we become less fat adapted, more insulin resistant, it becomes dysfunctional. And it's part of this whole vicious cycle that we talked about earlier, Drew. So I, I thought, you know, what a great way to stimulate my brown fat is to get, you know, to go cold plunging. And we do that by jumping into rivers, Lake Washington. Uh, but also I just got this horse trough. It's like a 110, go- uh, 110 gallon tank. You can buy these at feed stores and everything like that, wherever you live. And I just fill it with the hose or rainwater. I have a little filtration system so the water doesn't get yucky. I just, there's a few YouTube videos on it. And my wife and I jump in there every morning and it's, you know, it's one of these things, it's mental exercise. I can't tell you, Drew, there's never been a time that I'm excited about jumping in it. Just, (laughs) you know, just like there was never a moment that I was super excited about doing research about writing a book. Like it's work. It's all work. And so I just convinced myself that 
If I start the day by doing things I don't want to do, that will make other tasks easier as the day goes on because it's like I checked one thing off. So we jump in there and, you know, the first time we did it, it was like 30 seconds was all we could do. And then then it was 45 seconds, then a minute. And so that little progress of improving is so cool because you're like, wow, now I can do this for seven minutes. It's ice cold. 95% of people in my neighborhood couldn't even, wouldn't even have the, the courage to jump in here. What else can I tackle throughout the day? What about that research I need to do or that phone call I need to make or that email I need to send to help with my business or my personal development? So for me, yeah, there's exciting, you know, new data on brown fat, but it's really just a mental exercise to stretch and, and work my grit muscles in my brain. I think grit is one of these things that we, we all can benefit from in our life. And, and, you know, doing things that are uncomfortable helps us improve our grit and our fortitude. And what a way to shake up our nervous system. You know, we wake yeah. up some mornings, we check our phone and like see an email or a post, you know, brings up uncomfortable feeling or an insecurity or that. We just store all this stuff in our body, in our fascia and there and it's like a cold plunge. It just like shakes. It's almost like you see dogs and cats just like shaking vigorously to like shake off the energy of one moment and then so that they can go into the next moment, it's like a cold plunge is like my equivalent. When I jump into the cold water, it's like you're physically letting go of a lot of stuff that you store inside your body. Yeah, eloquently said. I haven't thought about it like that, but it makes a lot of sense. It's beautiful. Mike, you mentioned your uh, wife. I referenced earlier that you have a daughter. You know, a lot of times people who have families, they're thinking about how can they, you know, what are some tips and tricks of how to get the family all eating, living, practicing health, wellness, not just what you eat, but other components. Um, you know, you guys have a little chicken coop, you know, you, you mm -hmm. do so many different things. What are some lessons or takeaways from, um, that you've experienced that your wife experienced, uh, uh together with your daughter that can help families? You know, we, we had a Dr. Maya sheet treat on the podcast just a few episodes earlier. And she talked about all these different things that her family tries to do to really bring health and wellness into their routine so that they can experience it together. Have there been things that you've seen that have worked for your family that other families can um, embrace? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. You know, it's, it's, it comes from just, um, you know, we, we don't watch TV. We do have a TV and maybe like one day a week, we'll do 20 minutes or something like that. But just trying to have more fun with nature and incorporate nature in everything we do and get Inez, our daughter, involved in cooking. I sh we garden a lot and I grow a lot of vegetables. So having helping her, you know, having her help me in the garden, uh, she knows composting, you know, just getting her back to our roots, um, you know, and our, like when I say our roots, I mean, as humans, uh, I think it's the easiest thing we can do. And so, you know, it was just her birthday uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so instead of like renting out a fun room at, you know, Chuck E. Cheese and getting all this junk food and all that, so we just minimize our exposure to all those excessive amounts of technology. Again, I love technology. I, we're talking through great technology on my iMac, Apple computer. But, you know, minimizing it for her, uh, I think, is key. And so, you know, one thing we did is just we stopped buying all the processed stuff, all, all the gluten-free chips, all of this. You know, it, you know, if it comes in a box, bag, or a can, we eat very, very little of it because we feel that that just kind of feeds the monster. And Again, this can take some adjusting for parents and families, and you're going to get some kickback from your kids. But, you know, kids are so malleable and adaptable. And once you see them start to make these positive changes, they see it themselves. You know, for example, we got her mouth taping. She's six years old. 
she's now mouth taping again to help her breathe through her nose. And now like I, for a while, like I'd have to like convince her. I say, okay, Naz, if we mouth tape, we can go get that organic frozen yogurt on Friday night. And she would like, I'd have to like, you know, barter with her. But now she realizes that she sleeps better and, and stuff like that. So, you know, we, that's, it's just slowly every single day. But, um, what I found is the more that we can get her involved, the easier and less challenging it becomes to get her to eat these things. So when she sees you know, me cut the vegetables and, and she's carrying them into the kitchen, she'll want to try to eat them, right? She, instead of like these green things that came out of a bag from the store. So I guess, you know, I'm not a parenting expert, but the, the more that we can get them involved, the easier it becomes. All great tips, Mike. I just want to thank you. And, you know, you opened up the podcast with this personal story that even if people have not had experiences with uh, substance abuse or other things. I think everybody can understand addiction and the role that it plays in our life. And and it's also just a taboo topic that so many people have curiosity around and just need more honest conversation. So I want to acknowledge you for opening up and sharing about that. You know, it's, I know it's a subject you haven't talked a lot about and, and also for just putting out this incredible amount of information. I mean, you can, people can literally go to your website, typing almost all sorts of different subjects that we talked about here and not only find, you know, great content, but sophisticated conversations you've had from people who you hand select that you trust to really break this information uh, down, whether somebody's an advanced biohacker or they're just getting started in improving their diet. So I just want to really applaud you for all the incredible work you've done. Can you tell our audience a little bit more where they can find you on social, on the web, um, your book? Yeah. Well, first of all, Drew, really appreciate the kind words and your friendship and all that. Um, it's, it's an honor to be on this podcast with you. Uh, but yeah, folks are interested in connecting. You know, I'm on all, all the, the social media platforms and so forth. Most active on YouTube as my primary platform, which is a high intensity health, uh, all separate high intensity health. And, and or if you type in Mike Muscle, probably pull it up too. And then also on Instagram, as you mentioned, it's metabolic underscore Mike. Uh, and then on Facebook. So yeah, I do a lot of video based type stuff. And, and my goal is yeah, I realize that research can be intimidating and all that. So what I, I like to do is just dumb things down so that people don't have to spend time to go into PubMed and search and all this sort of thing. I just, you know, try and distill it down the sound bites that are practical and actionable for people. So that's kind of how I try to help other people uh, make healthy lifestyle changes. Well, you're definitely living your mission, brother. And you did it today on this podcast too. And on behalf of all our listeners, uh, I thank you and I applaud you for the incredible work you're doing. We super appreciate you joining us on the Broken Brain Podcast.